Hello and welcome to this, the latest TEDS International Podcast. My name is Ed Dorrell, I'm Head of Content here at TEDS, and this week we're joined by Kevin Russ, who is Executive Director of the Educational Collaborative for International Schools, um, a group, it's a organisation that is designed to help schools, teachers and leaders get better by sharing practice and doing training together. Just by way of, by way of background for our listeners, um, when Kevin and I first agreed to do this a few weeks ago, the whole COVID-19 thing hadn't really taken off. Um, since then, obviously, it's the biggest story in town by some distance. So um, the bulk of this conversation, I think, will be about the way international schools specifically are dealing with and coping with the enormous impact and pressure that they're experiencing because of coronavirus. Um, but before we start, by way of background, Kevin, say hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, I should explain to our listeners, Kevin's in uh, Washington, D.C., I think. Um, uh, but Kevin, tell us who you are and what ECIS is. Sure. So I have the privilege and honor of serving as executive director of ECIS, formerly known as the European Council of International Schools. We rebranded in 2016 to reflect our, our, glowing, our growing global footprint. Um, it's our 55th year of operations, so we've been around since 1965. And ECIS historically did uh, everything from teacher development, leadership development, to accreditation, recruitment services, and such. Um, yeah. And so we've, we've really had a, a rich and varied history. But now, as you correctly identified, we primarily focus on teacher development, leadership development, and some uh, benchmarking services and advisory. And how many members do you have? Uh, about 425. And these are almost all kind of classical international schools in many different countries? Correct. Um, and who are you, Kevin? Tell us about you. <laughs> Uh, well, I still am a teacher uh, at heart, so right. I, I was a classroom teacher uh, and sort of middle middle administrator, if you will, for almost 20 years in, in U.S. independent schools, language teacher, teaching French, German, and Latin. I happen to be a, a polyglot, so I deal with seven languages in, in various, various levels of fluency. Um, American and British uh, dual citizen. Um, but I've always, I've always been very interested, not just in professional learning, but in, in organizational and structural thinking about school systems thinking and so forth, especially as we live in this you know, dynamic era for education. So, um, when we first started talking, COVID-19, I don't think, had even been identified as the official name for the artist we largely call coronavirus. Or perhaps we should better call bat flu because it's much more interesting and fun. Yes. Um, but before, and then suddenly last week when we were about to record a podcast, um, you had to make a really big decision, which was to postpone your conference or not postpone your conference. Correct. So conferences in many ways are the historical backbone of the organization. So we had conferences slated for March, April and May. Uh, the, the March conference is a physical education conference, so it sort of does what it says on the tin. It's yeah. physical, so to, to have a conference um, for that group of practitioners, one really needs to have physical activity as part and parcel of what happens. So we were in contact with our special interest group, as well as the host school, the International School of Amsterdam, and then they graciously identified some time next year so that we could postpone it. 
and carry it on next year. So that was fine. Um, the one that was more of a concern, I don't mean yeah. it in such a pejorative sense, but it was on our minds, was our leadership conference, which annually occurs uh, around about April. And so it was slated for Madrid in late, late April. And given what we were seeing at member schools in terms of their, their policies on travel, not just for the students, but in our yeah. case, importantly, for faculty, staff, leaders, yeah. uh, we knew that we were going to have to make some kind of a call. We were getting an increasing number of queries, unsurprisingly, as to whether the conference was still on. So as those queries were coming in, we had put out an RFP to learn about what events management uh, softwares were out there for virtual yeah. conferences. And I had seen this last five or six years ago, blown away, absolutely blown away by how much that's improved. So we made the call on Thursday with the board's support to, to go ahead and uh, move that conference from a physical conference to a virtual conference. And that was... Uh, we follow a risk management protocol, and so that was that was yeah. uh, embedded along the way. But yeah, that was a um, seemingly difficult decision. But frankly, having decided on the provider that we did for the virtual event, we're incredibly excited—not just confident, but incredibly excited about the opportunities that this offers us. So, in some ways, the decision you've made um, echoes the decisions that many of the schools in your organisation are making or being forced to make. So I'm being inundated at the moment by, by press releases and statements from schools about how they're taking their learning um, virtual because yes. essentially they've been told to close or circumstances yes. have forced them to close. Are these conversations you're having, having a lot? Um, daily, and sometimes it feels like hourly in some ways. So uh, you know, I keep my eyes on, on a number of targets, so to speak. So I'm looking at our member schools, I'm looking at other general school communications, usually via social media, as well as friends, friends in the sector. And then I'm looking at conferences that are quite frankly being canceled left, right, and center yes. I just, as I look around. And uh, it, the international school sector is no different. Loads of conferences that have been scheduled, say February to April, are being completely canceled. Yeah. And, and we saw this actually as an opportunity because we've already moved very much into the digital space as, as a membership organization with with courses that are part of our membership in terms of um, child protection training and governance training, we thought actually to do this would be completely in keeping with where we've been going. So why don't we be a bit bold? Uh, the, the software is excellent. We've got excellent technical support from the, from the group behind the software. Because our schools are doing teaching and learning remotely, why don't we do this from a professional learning perspective, yeah. which takes advantage of having those who have already done the school closure and can contribute from their perspective to what's happening to then bringing in schools that may be contemplating it and saying, actually, this is a great way to create a melange of professionals who can learn from each other directly in a quote-unquote live virtual environment and perhaps apply those principles more or less immediately to their situation. How interesting. So how prepared do you think schools have been for this? Presumably there's a wide range um, some schools will have really vibrant and well-developed online learning communities, and some schools, I imagine, are, are, are a bit more scared of what they're having to do. Yes, again, you're, you're spot on. I mean, there are, it is a spectrum. So uh, many international schools are, normally speaking, incredibly well prepared from a, a business continuity and academic continuity perspective. Uh, I think 
from a business continuity perspective, the, the literal operations of running the school, um, those plans have always been fairly well ensconced. Academic continuity, the more forward-thinking schools have always been, I think, again, uh, quite prepared for this. Others, um, and I don't mean this in any pejorative sense, had to scramble a bit to assemble the academic yeah. continuity piece, even though, yes, they, they knew how it would work. The question was, okay, we get the basic mechanics of it, but how does it look from a practical perspective within school operations from, you know, if you've got sort of a, a homeroom type meeting thing in the morning to, to teachers collaborating on, on uh, lesson planning and how do we how do we deal with this? And what about young children, say ages five, six, seven, as yeah. opposed to the older? So the, there arose almost immediately, as is no surprise in the digital age, these groups of practice, communities of practice around how do we do this? And uh, within our own community, um, we have a, an educational technology special interest group, and, and one gentleman in particular named John Nickton from the International School of Luxembourg created a Facebook group which has got 2,100 people now on wow. there sharing ideas, not just around the classroom practice aspect of it, but from the academic continuity perspective, sort of at that business level. How do we go about doing this, and what are the steps to, to prepare for closure when we're uncertain as to whether we'll actually close. Just for our, um, our listeners' benefit, um, how would they find, do you know the name of that group if they search on Facebook? Um, I think the search term on Facebook that should find it would be International Schools COVID-19 Closure. Something like that okay. should bring it up. Bring it should up. bring it up indeed. And actually, I'll tell you what, I'll follow up on an email afterwards and I'll make sure yes. that we, we share that link when, when we share the podcast. Um, yes. One of the things that I guess, I mean, it's obviously far from ideal as a situation, but one of the things I found quite uplifting, and you've touched upon this, is the willingness of schools to, to share with each other. Essentially, in, in a crisis, instead of their heads going down, they appear to be looking up as well and saying, right, you're in the same boat, you can try this. Exactly. And, and sort of along those same lines, it's really quite interesting because schools that would normally be quite competitive in a given environment, the, you know, that piece has sort of gone away and it is this, this um, immediate sharing facility mm -hmm. that, that is going on. And so it works on that sort of localized level. But what's brilliant about it is it also expands, kind of like a ripple effect when you throw a stone into a pond or something. Yeah. And, and so as COVID-19 sort of makes its way across, you know, if you look at the map and you see it from Asia across to Europe, et cetera, the, these waves are pushing out in front and, and schools are benefiting from what's being generated by those schools who have already entered into closure some for a month now already. Which is just extraordinary. And I've just come from a meeting actually where they were talking about the safeguarding and I'm putting it on the spot and I don't know whether you have an opinion about this, but there's, there's a safeguarding issue now as well. Because in, in some places like Hong Kong where you say the schools have been closed since mid-January, um, People are beginning to worry about the psychological damage this is doing to kids, yeah. which I, I, I think is really interesting. Is that you know they're not having their normal lives by any means. Yeah, um, I mean I'm not in a position to give any uh, meaningful uh, commentary on it, other than to say these questions are indeed being posed. So that the notion of well-being of children, which we see as encapsulated within the overall umbrella of safeguarding, I know that. Um, uh, uh, sister organization CIS, the Council of International Schools, for example, has been active on Twitter just in the last couple of days, sharing out um, some queries and I, I think perhaps a few resources in there as well. But yes, yeah. well-being very much on everyone's mind, as well as 
frankly, child protection concerns. Yeah. Um, how do we deal with that in the virtual space? I mean, you, you know, we've always heard questions about cyberbullying and so on and so forth, but well, but what about now when actually we're online all the time for quote unquote how we do school? Um, again, I'm not in a position to comment on, uh, no. I don't have the expertise on that, but no, these true. questions are there and in those communities of practice, you'll begin to find these resources. And what I think is really interesting is this sense that we've talked a lot about online learning platforms for many years. I mean, you touched upon it yourself earlier. Um, and suddenly, there are <laughs> this has been accelerated in an extraordinary way. And, and lessons are being learned really quickly that may have taken 10 years. Yes. Yes, in some ways, it's, um, and I'm not the only one to feel this way, but uh, this, um, this event, as it turns out, is serving as a catalyst for primary, secondary education in particular, in, in terms of making us not just question how digital teaching and learning might work, but learn firsthand from it and implement quickly. And as much as we hear talk in the primary and secondary sector about, oh, you know, flexibility, we have to be adaptive, we have to be agile, etc. <laughs> Quite frankly, it's been very theoretical yes. until, until the present time. But I think in some ways it's, it's a brilliant learning opportunity for those of us who, who are you know, classroom practitioners to, to yeah. you know, head of primary or, or, or the head of school even. It, I think it's, it will have long-lasting impact in terms of what we've learned and then how do we apply it to the next time something like this occurs. And there will be, everything I've read suggests there will be a next time as well. Um, the, the, the only other kind of main question I was thinking, you were saying you speak to head teachers very regularly at the moment and principals in this context, is the resilience that we're now demanding of heads in these incredibly high pressure situations. Um, is there any advice you could give to heads? So, so, for example, where I am in London, there's a lot of talk about school closures, but it uh, hasn't happened yet. Um, what, what advice would you give in terms of resilience to school leaders? Uh, you give you resilience on a personal level. Yeah. Coping with it. Um, Coping with it. No, yeah. Number one thing, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> but not too close to someone. But, but, but in sincerity, yeah. um, it is, this is, this is a marathon, right? It's not a sprint. It, it's going to feel like a sprint in terms of preparation, etc. But there's a long view to this because of the uncertainty around it. We have to remain calm and focused and say, yes, I'm going to acknowledge the rapidity with which things are occurring. However, this closure event, it could last two weeks. It could last eight weeks. We just don't know. So staying centered, basically, thinking of one's own well-being, that you can't let go of that because the moment you let go of that, you may not be making good decisions. And I think if we don't get that right as school leaders, then that's going to create, you know, sort of a cascade of challenges. Yeah, I mean, it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary situation. And to be on the personal to the to the macro, um, what one piece of, and you say you're speaking to principals all the time, what one piece of advice would you give them in terms of suddenly deciding, potentially a very short notice, that their school was going virtual? What would you say? What's the first thing they should do? They should engage one of these communities of practice so that they've, they've immediately got someone who can serve as a sounding board, perhaps as a mentor, et cetera, and learn the lessons that they've already learned on that end from how they've gone about doing it and just take the collective wisdom of the group because that's where it will come from. 
And in some ways, that's a nice, I mean, I hesitate to use the word uplifting, but not a bad, positive way to finish this conversation. Um, Kevin, thank you very much for joining us all the way from DC. You're welcome. Um, and thanks very much for your time, and thank you for listening. Audi de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr.